Well, I have a bit of change of pace for you this morning. Very late in the week, was feeling compelled to go a different direction. Just for today, we'll resume with our study in 1 Corinthians next week. And we'll look about, look at this topic of freedom from worry. We're going to be looking in Philippians chapter 4, and we'll look at the last part of verse 5 all the way through the end of 9. We'll focus a little bit more on the most familiar parts of this passage, which is Philippians 4, 6, and 7. But we'll start with something that I, I, I believe with all my heart. I, I don't believe that most people like to raise their hands in church. Do you like to raise your hand in church when someone asks you a question? Almost no. And so I'm going to ask you a good one. How many of you never worry about anything? Would you raise your hand? <laughs> How many of us worry about something all of the time? Well, maybe not all the time, but how many of us worry about stuff in our lives? Don't we all do that? Don't we all worry? We do. We have a common experience in this life, difficulty and hardship in the presence of a faithful and a loving God, and we find this tension between what we can control, what we can explain, and what God has said about Himself and what He says is true for us. I found these statistics, and I haven't tried to vet them out with a great degree of accuracy, but I think this is probably really in the ballpark. And here's what it says. An average person's anxiety is focused on 40% of the things that will never happen, 30% of the past that cannot be changed, 12% about criticism by other people, most of which is not true, 10% about health, which only gets worse as we worry. And then 8% is about real problems that we will actually face or are facing in our lives. Think about that. About 90% or so of what we worry about is not in the now. It is not in the present experience that we have. So if anyone had good reason to worry or to be anxious, it would be the Apostle Paul. Philippians 1.15, it says that there were preachers in Rome who were preaching the gospel filled with envy and strife as opponents of Paul who were trying to make things more difficult for him. In Philippians 4, 1-3, earlier in this chapter, we learned that two of Paul's most dear friends in the Lord were in contention and conflict with one another. As we know, as a setting of the writing of the, of the book of uh, Philippians, that when Paul wrote this letter, he was actually in jail in Rome awaiting for his trial that would likely end in his execution. So if anybody knew anything about anxiousness or worry, it was Paul. But Paul would say in Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. So Paul had discovered for himself in his walk with the Lord the key to overcoming worry, and he was inspired by God to share what he had learned in himself. So very quickly, Philippians 4, 6, and 7, you probably have memorized this and could probably spit it out with a high degree of accuracy, but it says, Be anxious for nothing but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds 
in Christ Jesus. Now these two verses are incredibly familiar. And I would imagine that many of you have tried or have actually memorized these verses. Yet I think we would agree that they are incredibly difficult to apply consistently in our own lives. Now what I find to be incredibly interesting about this little section of scripture here is what is said in verse 5 right before this since there are no chapter or verse designations in the Greek we often don't read this in context with what it says in verses 6 and 7 but the last part of verse 5 says the Lord is near do you see that? so let's read this together and connect What the end of verse 5 says, The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing but in everything. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, how much of a difference does it make to read the last part of verse 5 before reading... Verses 6 and 7. Does it make a difference? It does to me. It was revolutionary in discovering what Paul has said in his own relationship with Christ. The Lord is near. Therefore be anxious about nothing. So freedom from worry is going to require four specific actions on our part that we're going to find in this passage of Scripture. Number one, Remembering the Lord is near. The Lord is near. Do you remember that all of the time? Do you sometimes have a hard time remembering that in the midst of difficulty and hardship and great circumstance? And I've used this visual illustration many, many times in public teaching, and that is very simply this. If you were to put your left hand out there in front of you and say, this is God... This is the reminder that God is near, that God is in my life. But if you take that right hand and say, here are my difficulties, here are my hardships, here are my fears and my worries, what happens to our picture of God? It is greatly distorted by the reality of the very present challenges that we face in our life. But if you take that left hand and bring it close and put the circumstances and conflict and worry of your right hand behind it, what happens? The perspective of all of this stuff is now filtered through the reality that God is near as opposed to reversing those things. So the reality is in overcoming worry in our lives is remembering the Lord is near. What did Jesus say before he was to ascend into heaven? He gave the great commission and said, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Does circumstance change that? Does hardship change that? Does our laundry list of worry change that? Absolutely not. We have to remember the Lord is near. Now when Paul says the Lord is near, there's two ways that we can think about this. It can either mean close in space which means He is near to me in His presence. Like the person sitting next to you, they are near. But it can also mean close in time, meaning that we are 
close to being with Him, either through His return or through our passing from this temporary world into the eternity that God has in store for us. Well, both of these are true. You think about the length of your life, and by all accounts, we've lived long lives. But it's a drop in the bucket in comparison to eternity. The Lord is near in time because eternity lasts for a very, very, very long time. It lasts forever. But the Lord is also near in His physical presence to us, even though we can't see Him. That's probably what Paul has in mind here, is that presence in mind, He is both near and will respond to the believer's need. We would read this in Psalm 34, 18 as a reminder. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saved and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Well, I believe that when we are enwrapped in our worry and in our anxiety, there is the semblance of a broken spirit, a crushed spirit. And we need to remember that peace can be ours Why? Because the Lord is near. It is not uncommon for Christians to lose confidence in God when in the midst of great difficulty. But it is in these times that we must cling to Him, remembering that God is near. Number two, the second thing we have to do to overcome worry is be anxious for nothing. Remembering the Lord is near being anxious for nothing. The word anxious is from the Greek word marimnao, and it means to be pulled in different directions. For example, our hopes pull us in one direction, and our fears pull us in the opposite direction. Our desires pull us in one direction, but our circumstances pull us in another direction. To be anxious is to feel as if we're being pulled apart. That's what it means in the Greek. The English root of this word presents a little bit of a different meaning, but an enlightening picture image for us. And it comes from the English word meaning to strangle. If you've ever really worried, you know how it does indeed have the potential To strangle someone. Have you ever heard the phrase, you're going to worry yourself to death? Where do you think that came from? It came from from this English meaning to actually be strangled. Now listen to this. The National Mental Health Committee, many years ago, gave this report. And it says that half of all the people in America's hospital beds are constant worriers. Half the people in America's hospital beds are constant worriers. Mental distress can lead to migraine headaches, arthritis, heart trouble, cystitis, colitis, backaches, ulcers, depression, digestive disorders, and sometimes, in its most severe form, even death. Now, this is a secular organization that has absolutely no spiritual connection of any kind, but they simply verify the need for us to find a remedy for anxiety or extreme worry. Now, if you were to add to that list 
The mental fatigue of restless nights where sleep is incomplete and hard to come by. And days where we are just absolutely gripped in the issues that we're worried about. We get a glimpse of the kind of havoc that can be wrought in our lives when worry is left to run its natural and spiritual course. From a spiritual perspective, anxiety is wrongful thinking, excuse me, wrong thinking and wrong feelings about problems and people. Now, as you fill that in, and if you're not filling that in, I want you to read that, and I want you to think about this. From a spiritual perspective, anxiety or worry is wrong thinking and wrong feelings about problems and people. It is very natural for us to worry, but it is not spiritual for us to worry. Why? Because the Lord is near. We have a perspective that is radically different from those in the world who knew nothing about this great God who loves and saves and indwells and makes promises to and empowers to live the kind of life that is above the typical worry that is found in those who do not know Him. Now the role of our enemy, and he is very real and he is very busy, the role of our enemy, the goal of our enemy is to erode our faith, it is to steal our joy, it is to compromise our peace, and it is to undo any sense of purpose that we might have as God's children. So the cure for anxiety is revealed by what Paul goes on to say in number three, praying about everything, remembering the Lord is near, being anxious for nothing, praying about everything. It says here in the second part of verse six, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, Let your request be made known to God. The only cure for worry is prayer. That's it. Prayer is passing the burden of this life, of this experience, of this problem. It is passing that from us to God. You remember that children's game, Hot Potato? You might have this plastic device that you wind up and you can hear the clock ticking. And when that spring ends its course, it buzzes and whoever is left holding the potato is out. Well, that's kind of what we do with our problems is we think that God doesn't want anything to do with them. We forget that God is near. We forget that God has invited us to bring our burdens to Him. God says, I'm not going to play hot potato. I want you to bring your burdens to me. The Bible is literally filled with invitation and encouragement for us to pray. Now, why why did God do that? Did God do that because it's a psychological comfort? Or did God make this invitation? Did God give this encouragement for us to come to Him and pray because God knows that that's the only remedy for worry and anxiety? 
a very, very small sampling of some of the verses that we would find in our Bibles about the invitation and encouragement to pray. To pray. Psalm 145.18 The Lord is near to all who call upon Him, to all who call upon Him in truth. The Lord is near. Matthew 7, 7 and 8 Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And, he, and to him who knocks, it will be open. First Peter 5, 6 and 7. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Hebrews 4, 14-16, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin... Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Why? So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We could go on and on and on and identify the myriad of verses that are in God's Word that invite us and encourage us to pray because prayer is the only cure for worry. Now, there are some important components to prayer, and these are probably not a mystery to us. And so, purposeful prayer is going to involve four things. The first one is adoration. Adoration is to focus on who He is. Adoration for God helps us to remember the greatness and the majesty of God. You know, there are a number of attributes that we could identify, and people have gone on to list these things for us, and i got 15 of them here, and I'm going to go through them very, very quickly, and each of these could be substantiated with a number of verses. But I want you just to think about these things, and think about how worthy of praise and worship God is based upon these attributes, remembering that these attributes cannot and do not completely explain the vast greatness and majesty of God. Think about this. God is infinite. He is self-existing without origin. God is immutable. He never ever changes. God is self-sufficient. He has no needs. God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. God is omnipresent. He is always everywhere. God is wise. He is full of perfect, unchanging wisdom. God is faithful. He is infinitely, unchangeably true. God is good. He is infinitely, unchangingly kind and full of goodwill. God is just. He is infinitely, unchangeably right and perfect in all He does. God is merciful. He is infinitely, unchangeably compassionate and kind. God is gracious. He is infinitely inclined to spare 
spare the guilty. God is loving, infinitely, unchangingly loving us. God is holy. He is infinitely, unchangingly perfect. God is glorious. He is infinitely beautiful and great. These are some of the many, many reasons that we have to adore the name that is above every name, the name that has loved us with an everlasting love, the the name that has invited us to be His children, to spend an eternity with Him. Purposeful prayer begins with the adoration focusing on who He is. Secondly, purposeful prayer includes confession where we focus on what we have done. It is the sin of omission. It is the sin of commission where we specifically identify our wrongdoing before the Lord. You know, it isn't enough to say, God, forgive me, I am a man of many, many sin. Yeah, that's true. But that really isn't enough. I can identify with the reality that it can be very uncomfortable to specifically enumerate or articulate the individual prayer that I am guilty of, yet we need to do that to take ownership of our self-righteousness, of our being judgmental, of our indifference to those who are suffering or struggling, our unkind words, our defiant resistance to forgive. And on and on and on the list ought to go. And as we think about what it is we have done as a contrast to who He is, it ought to break our hearts. It ought to cause us to weep in repentance of how quickly and easily we get led astray into embracing a sinful lifestyle or sinful attitudes or sinful actions. It isn't enough just to say, God, I am a man of many sin. God says, yeah, I know that. I know it all. I know it before you'll even commit it. I know it before you'll even think it. But I believe that it is in the specificity of that sin that we come to terms with who we really are and the love He has for us and the the need that is ours to walk before Him rightly and humbly. The third part of purposeful prayer is thanksgiving. It is focusing on what He has done. In loving us, in saving us, in providing for us, in forgiving us over and over and over. Think about how much God has forgiven us from. Think about how patient God is with our indifference. Think about how generously God blesses us. Think about the ways that God sustains us that we don't even 
give any thought to how completely He provides for our physical and our emotional and our spiritual needs. Think about the way God protects you from all of the stuff that is around us. I believe that God protects us in ways that we don't even know because His protection has protected us before we needed the protection. Think about the thoroughness in the way that God has blessed us as an individual who used to be alienated and hostile towards Him, to now be a part of a spiritual family who will spend an eternity seeing Him as He really is. The last part of purposeful prayer is supplication, and it's focusing on what we need. Until we have adored and confessed and given thanks, we ought not ask anything from the Lord. It is far too easy to use God as a magic genie who's just supposed to give and give and give and give and give. But until we have really adored Him and confessed before Him and given thanks to Him, we won't pray for what we need. We'll pray for what we want. We'll pray for what we think is best for us rather than willingly submitting our will before His. We must remember that He is big enough to solve the problems that we can't. We need to remember that freedom from anxiety comes when we spend more time on who He is rather than what our problems are. The result of our prayerlessness is going to be unpurposed prayer or a radical increase in the level of worry that we find ourselves entrenched in. Well, the result of purposed prayer is given to us here in verse 7, and that is peace And the peace of God, which surpasses comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So as external peace is freedom from conflict, internal peace is freedom from worry. It is the spiritual peace that God provides that is beyond our comprehension. It's a peace that doesn't make sense. It's a peace that is so different from the severity of the circumstance or the hardship we're facing that the world around us would go, how can you have peace in a time like this? It's where immature Christians are confronted with their own lack of peace in their lives. Here's what we need to remember as we think about worry and anxiety and problems and difficulty and hardship is that when we pray, when we come before the Lord, when we pray purposefully, God may not always remove the problem or the initial cause of the anxiety, but nonetheless God promises a peace that passes our understanding. Peace even when it doesn't make sense to us. Notice the kind of peace that God gives to us. It is a peace that guards. What does it guard? It guards our heart, which is susceptible to wrong feelings. 
I don't feel like God loves me. I don't feel like God is being fair to me. I feel like somebody else is more deserving of this hardship than I am. His peace will guard us from wrong feelings. It will guard our minds from wrong thinking. Do our hearts and minds need to be guarded from that which is untrue? You better believe it. Desperately needs to be guarded. And this exactly, this is exactly the kind of peace that God provides. A peace that will guard our hearts and our minds beyond our comprehension. This doesn't mean the absence of trials or conflict on the outside, but it means that inside we can have a spiritual rest that defies what anyone else might think is normal. Because it isn't normal. It is spiritual virtue in the face of human problems that can only be explained by the presence of a loving and a living God. Now the fourth thing that we have to do in order to experience this kind of peace is changing our focus. Now we haven't read this yet, but it's really the tail end of this passage So in changing our focus, Paul gives to us what our focus really ought to be as a contrast to what our focus generally is in the midst of hardship and difficulty. Verse 8, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Much of the time, our spiritual victory is going to hinge upon what we choose to focus our hearts and our minds on. Garbage in, garbage out. Bad information in, wrong actions out. Wrong things in, wrong feelings out. Excuse me, wrong thoughts in, wrong feelings out. Romans 12.2 tells us that our minds desperately need to be transformed. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Is it God's will that we become overcomers in the midst of great hardship? Absolutely. Is it God's will that we exhibit spiritual, supernatural peace in the midst of great and difficult times? Absolutely it is. And this is why our minds need to be transformed. Very, very quickly, six necessary focuses that we must have in order to overcome worry. And these are enumerated for us here in verse 8. We are to focus on truth. God's Word is truth. What does the Word say about Him? What does it say about His promises? What does it say about what He will do? What does it say about who we are in Him? So the truth of who He is, the promises He has made, who we are in Him, what His ultimate purpose for us is, is what we are to focus on, not the circumstance, not the uncertainty, not the thing that might or might not happen down the road. Letter B, focus on the heavenly. 
The word in the Greek there is honorable. That means to worship or to revere. So we are to think on that which is worthy of all, that which is to be adored, that which is worthy of praise, not the things which are trivial or temporal or rooted in our earthly existence. So how different are the heavenly from the earthly and what it is that we are to focus on. You know, we get so bogged down in the temporary and in the now that it's just right there before us all the time. And if we don't intentionally focus on who He is, we will get bogged down in the reality of this temporary world that we live in and not the supernatural spiritual reality of who God is and what God has made available to us in our relationship with Him. Letter C, focus on obedience. The word here means conformity to God's standards. It isn't easy to give ourselves over to obedience when we are in difficult times. In fact, for some people, when they're in a difficult time, it's when they give themselves over to their earthly desires. You've heard the expression, you feed on your emotions. You give yourself over to your desires because it's a trigger for you. So you do these things. You smoke, you drink, you overeat, you give in to these vices, whatever those things might be. We have to focus on our obedience and say, God, conform me into the individual you want me to be not what my fleshly desire wants me to give myself over to in the midst of great difficulty and hardship in my lifetime right now. Even when our life is hard, we are to focus on obedient living. Living. Letter D, focus on holiness. Not His holiness, but our holiness. The word here means wholesome That which is not mixed with moral impurity. So we are to focus on staying committed to being set apart for Him, to living for Him, to doing our very best to live a life that is unblemished, even though we are embroiled in this hardship or in this difficulty. Letter E. Whatever is lovely, focus on what pleases God. This word is used only here in the New Testament, and it means to be gracious or to be sweet or to be generous. And so we are to focus on those acts which are pleasing to God. Focus on the things that are pleasing to God, those virtues that are actually attractive to God. You know, when life sometimes squeezes us like a tube of toothpaste, what is in is what's going to come out. And if we are filling ourselves with the truth of God's Word and who He is, that is what's going to come out of us when life squeezes us. We're to focus on that which is of good repute. Letter F, focus on the respectable. It describes what is highly regarded or well thought of, or reputable is another word that could be used there. So we're to focus on the attitudes and actions that define who we are to be in Christ, and not who we were saved from before Christ. Focus on the respectable, who we are, not on who we were. So these six items are described by Paul as excellent and praiseworthy, and we are instructed to focus on these things
and focusing on these things instead of focusing on our present circumstances. And this focus will enable us to rise above and walk in the peace that God has provided for us. As a closing to this section, read verse 9 with me. It says, The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the peace of God will be with you. Now imagine, if you would, the immense pressure Paul was under, and we've read about this many, many times in the past, where Paul endured great hardship, being hungry, being beaten, being without clothing, being shipwrecked, all of the different things. So imagine here is the Apostle Paul coming into town, and he says, man, life is really bad. Life is really hard. I just don't know how much longer I can do this. You know, this God I've set my life apart to live for, this is what He's given me to do, and I just don't know how I'm going to do it. Woe is me. You know, Eeyore complex. That's not what Paul did. That's not what Paul said. That's not how Paul acted. Paul says, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul didn't put on a big show. Paul wasn't a great actor. Paul was a man that walked with God and experienced the presence of God in such a way that he knew the peace of God apart from from whatever circumstance he found himself in in the moment. So freedom from anxiety, freedom from worry is the result of going to God in purposeful prayer Adoring Him, confessing before Him, giving thanks to Him, and making your needs known to Him. And all of this is possible through Christ Jesus. It is in Christ, in salvation, and walking in close fellowship with Him. We will never experience the peace of God in religion or in ritual but only in relationship. Only in relationship. I came across this poem, and I'm not a big poem guy, but I came across this poem, and I think it articulates the human tension so well that I'm going to read this. And if you want to copy this, I'll be more than happy to paste it and email it to you later. Here's the poem. As children bring their broken toys... With tears for us to mend, I brought my broken dreams to God because He was my friend. But then instead of leaving Him in peace to work alone, I hung around and tried to help with ways that were my own. At last I snatched them back and cried, How can you be so slow? My child, he said, what could I do? You never did let go. And I think that really encapsulates the human problem with worry and anxiety and hardship and fear is that we don't cast them upon Him who cares for us. We hold them close and tight, expecting God to do something now. And because He's not doing it now, then obviously God needs my help. 
And as long as we believe that God needs our help, He's not infinite, He's not omniscient, He's dependent, and we'll never experience what God has made available to us in and through our relationship with Him. Would you pray with me?